Okay, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we are here today with Michael DeShallot and his lovely wife, who's also his manager, and he travels across the country as both a hypnotist and a magician, and as our listeners and our readers might suspect, having looked at last week's paper, he is here for the Altamont Fair. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. <laughs> yeah. And I'd just like to start from hearing a little about your own story, how you got to be where you are today. What You grew up where? Well, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, yeah. and uh, my journey into magic and hypnosis kind of started when I was a little little kid. I think I was about seven years old. I used to watch cartoons a lot. And every Saturday in between the cartoons, there were the, um, the earliest form of uh, tel- uh, infomercials that I can remember. Um, Marshall Brodeen used to do TV magic. And then at the end of, you know, the, at the, end of the cartoons, he would do some uh, magic tricks on TV. And then he'd tell you where you can buy the magic tricks at the local drugstores, at the local uh, department stores. And so I remember I was seven years old at the time, and he just released a brand new magic kit and had all kinds of new tricks, like 10 tricks. And so I told my parents, that's what I want for Christmas. <laughs> and uh, I remember um, I discovered, and I hope my mom's not going to listen to this, but I discovered where my mom hid the Christmas presents. And so I carefully unwrapped one of them, which I suspected was the magic kit. It was, so I opened it up and started playing with it. So that was your first magic trick. That was my first escape from being <laughs> yeah, in trouble from my yes. mom, yeah. Because if she found out I had opened it before Christmas, I would have been in trouble. And so, yeah, so then I uh, opened up the magic trick, uh, magic, uh, magic kit, started playing with some of the tricks, carefully wrapped it back up, and then act surprised on Christmas Day. So you were already doing a show back at age seven. Well, it was a show for one. It was mostly for myself and me in the mirror. But uh, I got a good response. I applauded. Yeah. So, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, and then, I, you know, you learn a little bit of magic at that age and maybe pick up a book at your local school library or at the local library. And you run into a brick wall. You can only learn so much, I think, by yourself without having some mentoring and some uh, being under the tutelage of somebody who knows what they're doing. And so when I was older, uh, fast forward to, I think, uh, probably, I want to say mid-20s, um, I then was working with, uh, in the mortgage business, and I shared an office with a guy in the insurance industry. And he told me one day, he asked me one day if I could, if I could um, watch the phones for him while he went to lunch. And I said, well, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the magic store, uh, to the magic shop, to buy a trick to do for my Sunday school kids. And I said, what? Magic shop? There's a magic shop in Tucson? I didn't know about this. And he said, sure, you want to come with me? And so I did. Nobody watched the phones. And, uh, and we went to the magic shop. I bought a $10 magic trick, and the rest was history. That's why I got started in magic. So many of us, myself included, had magic sets as kids and were entranced by it. We didn't make a career out of it. What, what is it? When you flashed forward to your adult life, you were in that magic shop, you learned that trick. What is it about it that appealed to you? Why? Well, you know, it's just, it's just the, the mystery of the unknown. Knowing, you know, seeing somebody do something that appears to be a small miracle on their hands and then buying the trick and then when they tell you how the trick works... It's either super disappointing because it's so simple or it's incredibly exciting because now you can do something that most ordinary people cannot do. And uh, so it gives you that sort of sense of power. Um, And then it's honing those skills and learning more tricks and then performing it and putting together in in a format of a show. And that's when you start making money and get paid for it. 
And when did you start earning your living this way? Well, I would like to say with the first show that I ever did, but it was at a pizza parlor for a friend's uh, son's birthday party, and I think I made 50 bucks. So at that point, I still decided to keep my day job. Uh, but uh, it wasn't too long after that that I realized that, you know, I can charge a lot more than $50 for a show because by that time I had spent thousands of dollars on magic tricks and props and, and apparatus. And so I did have more of a show put together where I can entertain people from, you know, 30 minutes to an hour and a half as a solo entertainer. And so at that point, I decided to start uh, start doing some shows in schools and making a little money on the side. And before you know it, I was making a decent amount of money doing just magic. So do you have a persona, like a costume you wear or a name you use, or is it is it just you? The name is my name. That's what I use. Okay. And uh, the comedy magic of Michael DeShallot or the comedy magic of Michael C. DeShallot, if I use my middle initial. Um, so I, I sort of brand myself with my own name. And my persona, though, is one of sarcasm. I'm very sarcastic on stage. I'll roll my eyes. I'll make very sarcastic facial expressions. If somebody, if an assistant comes up on stage to help me with a trick and they do something, I will, I will make a goofy face at their, uh, at their response and their actions. And it's, uh, it's just sort of a comedic banter with the audience and with facial expressions and sarcastic comments. And is this your real personality, or this is a persona you say for the stage? What do you think, Melissa? Hmm? 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 <laughs> okay, what do you it's think, pretty huh? real, huh? and I see yeah, your wife real. is smiling. Yeah, and, okay. and I, I, try, I, try, I try to put some vocal inflection on that one, though, so, yeah. the, so the listening audience would understand the facial expression that I'm making now, rolling yeah. my eyes at you. Yes. Really, Melissa? Yes, really. <laughs> Eyebrows up near his hair, which is nicely spiked in the latest style, and I think probably bleached right um yeah yeah, yeah that's that's yep part we'll of go, the, we'll go with the, the cool part. look yeah yeah so um when did hypnosis enter your repertoire and how well it's it's a great question and an interesting story i had just purchased um it was a pretty expensive magic trick i would say about five thousand dollars and it was one of those big stage illusions where um the beautiful assistant which in this case is my wife uh gets in the box I bisector with two um, tubes that go through the box in two different directions. And then if that's not enough, I will shove 10 spikes in different directions through the box as well while she's inside. And then once all the spikes and the tubes are removed, I open the door. She comes out wearing a different uh, costume than she was wearing when she went in. And we call that magic. So I just purchased that illusion and just finished picking it up from Air Cargo. And keep in mind, these magic illusions are pretty big and pretty heavy. So I had it in the back of the truck, pulled into my driveway, uh, called my wife, said, hey, this thing is here now. Let's unload it if you'd help me unload it. While I was waiting for her to come out, I went to the, I went to the uh, mailbox. There was a magic magazine in there, one of the many publications I received monthly. And there was an ad in there. It said, magicians, are you tired of carrying those heavy tricks? Now, keep in mind, I looked back at my pickup truck and realized I had a 350-pound illusion in there that I was waiting for help to get unloaded. Uh, and then it said, magicians, would you like to walk into a show carrying nothing but a briefcase? Magicians, would you like to travel all around the country doing shows uh, you know, as a hypnotist? Well, now you can learn all the secrets of stage hypnotism. And so when my wife came out, I showed her the ad and I said, you know, hey, look, I can, I can learn how to become a uh, stage hypnotist. I always wanted to do that. And she, uh, she said, sure, you should do that. So I uh, went to the training, about a week-long training in Las Vegas, and then the rest is history. And now I'm actually on staff 
Uh, I'm one of the instructors on that uh, on staff at, uh, through that uh, training program. And you had mentioned this to me, and I had to look him up, and he was, just as you said, the dean of the American Hypnotist. You were trained by Ormond McGill. Yep. yep. So tell us a little about him and what the training consists of. Sure, sure. Ormond McGill at the time, he was, I want to say, in his mid-80s. Ormond was old when he was young. And he wrote, uh, many, yeah. he wrote many, many books. He wrote uh, 30-some books on the topic yeah. of hypnosis, anything from clinical hypnosis to stage hypnosis. He wrote uh, one of his more popular books was the Encyclopedia of Modern Stage Hypnosis, which um, is about the size of one of the Harry Potter books, one of the latter books. It's a pretty, pretty thick book. And uh, Orman was just a gentle soul. He was a guy that could lull you into a hypnotic state by just talking to you from the stage. And uh, my first impression of him was I had never met him, but I showed up to the training and being a magician and the ad said, you know, learn all the secrets of stage hypnosis. I thought there's a trick to it. And so I paid my money. I sat in the back of the room. I'm like, okay, old man, show me the secrets. And he said, well, before we start the training, I want you all to experience the power of hypnosis. And he started talking, started telling us a little story. Before I know it, my eyes were closed. And then before I know it, I was having a conversation with myself saying, wow, I don't feel like I'm floating. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't feel tingly all over, but I'll give you this much. This feels really relaxing. And so then before I know it, he counted from one to five and our eyes were wide open again. And I looked around the room and everybody had looked like they were just opening their eyes too. And this was a room full of former magicians who are pretty, I would guess, cynical about tricks. Exactly. There were magicians. There were also just just, uh, lay people from all around the world that wanted to learn how to be a stage hypnotist. And so we all had the sort of the same look on our face, and I'm thinking, well, that was a great way to kill five minutes at the beginning of the seminar and to get the whole class to focus on him. Yeah. And then I looked at my watch, and that was 45 minutes ago. Oh, my So I God. realized something had happened, and oh that's when I goodness. was hooked on hypnosis. Wow. So as this week unfolded, what he did this all with his voice? He, he did, did it this... all with his voice, yep. And the words that he used and... And uh, he, he was old, like I said, back then, and his health had begun to fail, and he wasn't really good at walking around that much. So he did this all sitting on a stool on the, on the stage. And the rest of the week, about uh, five or six more days of training, um, I was hypnotized over 40 times and uh, could actually, if I heard Orman speak now, could probably go into a state of hypnosis just by listening to the sound of his voice. And... Uh, it was uh, we learned everything from how to induce hypnosis to how to properly um, give suggestions for the volunteers on stage to follow them and everything involving the whole show. And then did you immediately put this into practice? I did because I'd been a magician for several years yeah. at that point. And so putting a show together and performing in front of live audiences was something that I already was used to doing. So this was just a different a different canvas, if you will, for me to paint on. Uh, and did you conduit. combine the magic tricks with the hip, hypnosis in the same um, show? I, I, did, I did at first. Yeah. I did at first. I would start my hypnosis shows with a couple magic demonstrations, um, you know, more mentalism effects, uh, things that involved mind games and such, such as that, things that would uh, make it appear as though I was reading their minds or controlling their thoughts in some way, and then I would drift into the hypnosis portion. Nowadays, I keep the two shows separate. Um, because I think it's better to keep them separate. Hypnosis shows themselves are their own separate standalone show. 
So you don't need so just to, to interject for people that are going to the Altamon Fair. Mm-hmm. Mike will be doing two shows that are magic shows every correct. day, and yep. then a third show that is the hypnosis. That show. is correct. Yeah, I believe, except for the first day of the fair tomorrow, I believe the shows are at noon and three are the magic shows. And then either 6 or 7.30 p.m. at night is the hypnosis show. I know the schedule fluctuates day to day because of other events that are going on. So my first two shows are magic shows. And then the the later show of the day is a hypnosis show. So two entirely separate shows, magic and hypnosis. So... You're not two entirely separate people, though. <laughs> you're one person. And what I wonder is, especially when we you get to the next step, which is you're also a hypnotherapist, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could, first of all, before I get to the big question, which is how do you maintain these two separate forces at the same time in, in your own mind? But mm-hmm. first, if you could just explain for people a little about hypnotherapy, and I'm just going to read for those that are skeptical, as of course I always am, the United States National Institutes of Health issued a report in 1995 which concluded, and this is a quote, the evidence supporting the effectiveness of hypnosis in alleviating pain associated with cancer is strong. Other data suggests effectiveness of hypnosis in other chronic pain conditions, including irritable bowel syndrome, temporomandibular joint dysfunction, and tension headaches. So I mean, there's a, the medical community has accepted this as something that, that works. And I, if you could just tell us a little bit about your own training in hypnotherapy and how you came to do that. Sure, and, and, and I'll even start by answering a little bit of that first question you asked, how do I keep these two worlds separate? Um, when I was doing my very first stage hypnosis show, which was actually about uh, two weeks after I got back from the training in Las Vegas when I originally learned stage hypnosis. So I was doing a stage hypnosis show at a uh, college sorority, uh, the University of Arizona, my own hometown in Tucson, and a couple of uh, the young ladies came up after the show and they said, you know, we saw how you were able to, you know, hypnotize the people on stage. Um, can you help us to stop smoking using hypnosis? Well, I wasn't really qualified to do that at the time. I wasn't a hypnotherapist. I was a stage hypnotist. So I referred them to a local hypnotherapist who could do that. But then as I walked away from that conversation, I realized I was missing an opportunity of helping people using some of the same similar skills that I use for hypnosis on the stage you can use that same sort of hypnosis set of skills to help people with other things like smoking cessation, weight management, stress control, eliminating fears, phobias, bad habits, creating better habits out of bad habits, Um, and additionally working with athletes um, to help them improve their focus, to um, helping students overcome test anxiety, Everything that you can imagine. Some of the things you mentioned in your statement, too, on the medical side, pain management, um, helping people have better, clearer minds when they're going through chemotherapy treatment. Um, Not that hypnosis cures cancer, because it does not, but it can help you with some of the side effects and managing those side effects of chemotherapy treatment and other treatments when you're going through these horrible diseases. So what was the training like? How, what did that consist of? Well, training is about, depending on who you get trained through, there's different training uh, conduits. Um, typically anywhere from 100 to 200 hours of training. 
both a combination of in-classroom training and practical experience and and basically, you know, uh, sometimes even studying under a mentorship or supervision of a master hypnotist. So my training consisted of about 100, 100 hours of classroom training combined with a lot of outside um, study and then, of course, practical experience as well, too. So could you just walk us through what a typical session would be like if someone came to you for hypnotherapy for a particular problem? How, sure. What happens? Sure. Um, what usually happens is I will interview them either on the phone or in person. Uh, do somewhat of a consultation, if you will, to find out what their expectations are of hypnosis. What do they want to use hypnosis for? And once we figure that out, um, I will have them come into the office for a free consultation where I will do some suggestibility testing. And all that is, uh, it's a fancy way of saying we want to make sure that hypnosis is going to work for you. So some people are better at suggestibility than others? Mm, not necessarily better, but more open to it. Uh-huh. So um, one of the common myths of hypnosis is that I can control people's minds. Um, I cannot. If I could do that, I honestly would be ruling the free world right now. <laughs> okay. So yeah. So the, again, note the sarcasm for effect there. Yes. Okay. Um, now, um, and so we, we don't control your mind. You have to be willing and so this, these suggestibility tests show us the different stages of willingness that people are. Um, another good example is if um, a, a person came to me to stop smoke, to be uh, uh, smoke-free for smoking cessation. And let's just say it was a gentleman, and he only came to me because his wife was nagging him, you know, to stop smoking. You need to go to do this. You need to stop smoking. You need to do this. And then he's not really wanting to quit smoking. It's not going to work. You have to want to uh, be hypnotized. You can reject um, becoming hypnotized. So people used to think it was only strong-willed people that were able to do that or strong-minded people. It has nothing to do with it. We're finding now the more intelligent you are, the more strong-willed you are, the more or the easier it is for you to go deeper into hypnosis because you can accept the concept and the theories that go behind it. So what I know you can't consolidate Mm -hmm. all this training into, you know, less than Mm -hmm. a half an hour. But in a nutshell, if you can, what is it that happens in the mind when someone's hypnotized? What is it that allows this, I guess it's a trigger to form Mm -hmm. for, for instance, not smoking or whatever the um, therapy is about? Sure, sure. Well, I can explain it a couple different ways. Um, Scientifically, when you enter a different brainwave state, In most cases, as we are now, as we're having this conversation, as our listeners are listening to this, they are in the beta, um, the beta brainwave state, which means that their brainwaves are beating somewhere around 30 to 40 millibeats per second. Then you, as your brainwaves slow down, as you're into more of a relaxed state, you go into the alpha state, um, which is similar to like when you're watching TV or a movie and you react emotionally to the movies that you're, or the movie that you're watching or the pictures you're seeing on the screen. So in other words, if, if it's a comedy and somebody slips on a banana peel and you laugh, you know that was just really a stunt in the movies. However, we react to it as if it was real. Our mind starts drifting in out of the critical factor into more of the literal factor of our mind. And then when you drift into the state of theta, which is about 8 to 4 millibeats per second, um, that's when you're in a state of hypnosis. So scientifically, it's when your brainwaves slow down. And what also happens at that time is you do slide the filter of your conscious mind aside, the critical factor of your mind, the analyzing part of your mind, 
You sort of slide that out of the way because you realize that person didn't really slip and fall on a banana peel. It was a staged stunt to make the movie funny. Or you realize the actor didn't really die who died in the movie. They just died on screen. But your mind bypasses that critical analyzation of it and goes into the literal part of your mind, which is your subconscious mind. So that's the science behind hypnosis. Other things happen too. Different parts of the brain light up. Different parts of the brain become more active when you're in hypnosis, when you're in a state of hypnogagia, as you are when you're in a waking state like we are right now. It's so odd because he sat at this table last week talking to a Buddhist, and she too, we were talking about the brain waves that come with meditation. So I guess it's a similar thing. You're putting yourself into a state that isn't an everyday state for your brain. So when you're in this state, you as the hypnotist does what to your subject? Um, Then you offer suggestions to them. So in other words, the suggestions you see while you're watching a movie is, oh, he just slipped on a banana peel. It's a visual suggestion, right? Um, But uh, we offer verbal suggestions, things that are commensurate or consistent with the goals that they're wanting to achieve. So if somebody is coming to us to become a non-smoker, obviously you're going to give them suggestions that are commensurate to that goal, that are consistent with what their thoughts are about. Could you just give an example? Sure. About being free from smoking, about no longer being um, dependent upon cigarettes, releasing those cigarettes, living to be smoke-free, living to be healthier, living to be able to take a nice clean breath in without that smoker's cough that follows afterwards. So it's just suggestions, but they're very direct suggestions and they're worded very carefully as to not offend the subconscious mind. Because obviously, going back to that I can't control your mind premise, if I were to give somebody a suggestion, and now I want you to rob a bank, I can say it very politely and nicely, but they wouldn't do it though, because they're not predisposed to do that. And that suggestion wouldn't make any sense because that's not what they're there for. They're there to improve their life, not do something that's illegal. So they're just words, but words are very, very powerful to our subconscious mind. When we don't analyze, when we just accept those words literally, um, those are very, very powerful statements. So you've made these statements to your patient when his mind waves are in a state that it goes Mm -hmm. through the critical mind to this, what you call literal subconscious mind. Then how... Then he leaves your office <laughs> and he, you know, reaches for his pack of cigarettes. And what happens in his mind that might prevent him from smoking that? Well, in, in, in those suggestions, what we do in the subconscious mind is we're helping our clients create new beliefs. Um, beliefs that are different and counterpunctal to the original beliefs that they had. So in other words, a smoker might come in and believe that they're addicted to cigarettes. They might believe that they can't quit. They might believe that those cigarettes have such a strong hold on them. There's no way they can ever put them down. When we give them the other suggestions, they actually have the ability to change their beliefs. They can believe then that they no longer are addicted to cigarettes, that they don't need um, to have a cigarette to feel relaxed, that they can live their life without cigarettes in them. So they accept them as a new belief, much like, you know, we all go through in life changing our political views from time to time. Sometimes, you know, you might be uh, a Democrat. Sometimes you might be a Republican. And as you get older and mature, your views might change. But if somebody were to try to change your views, 
you know, forcefully saying, well, no, you should believe in my party, not your party. You would reject that suggestion until you are ready to accept it as a new belief system. So the subject has to be open to this and ready to accept it. And then once they have, how many sessions does it take to reinforce this? Or is it something that happens just? Well, you know, that's a great way. And it's an interesting way you asked the question. um, How many sessions did it take to reinforce it? And that's what we believe in hypnosis. That reinforcing is very, very helpful. The more that you hear something, the more that you hear those positive affirmations that are consistent with your goals, the more likely you are to accept them permanently as a new belief system. However, people that come in and that are very, very willing to quit smoking will quit in that hour-long session. They will never touch a cigarette again. And again, some people have different levels of willingness, so some may be more willing than others, so others may require a couple of uh, follow-up sessions. But aren't you at the same time, with especially cigarettes, fighting against a physical reality of nicotine addiction? I mean, isn't there a, you know, wouldn't it take the body a while to to free itself of that? You know, actually, in reality, it only takes about 24 to 48, sometimes 72 hours on the outside to purge nicotine from your system. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, Yeah, so it's not as addictive of a substance as people really believe that it is. Hmm. It's more of a habit. Smoking is really a habit. Um, And evidenced by the thousands of clients that I work with, I ask them, when do you smoke a cigarette? And they tell me the times of the day that they do. Um, such as, you know, right when I wake up in the morning, after I have a meal, after I have uh, um, intimate relationships <laughs> yeah, with my partner. Yeah, that's the classic one, yeah. <laughs> there we go. We'll use different words for that now. <laughs> um, after dinner, when I'm talking to my friends on the phone, when I'm out having a cocktail with friends, uh, when I'm driving in my car, automatically I light a cigarette as soon as I sit down in my car. And so people have these times of the day that they have cigarettes. Um, Think about it. If somebody was truly addicted to nicotine, they wouldn't be able to make it entirely through the night without waking up to have a cigarette. Now, for the benefit of our listening audience, I want to point something out because I can already hear you arguing with me. You might be saying, well, I wake up in the middle of the night all the time to let the dog out and then I have a cigarette. Listen to how that is said. And listen to what is really happening in your life. You wake up in the middle of night to let the dog out. The dog is the reason why you're waking up in the middle of the night, not the cigarette. So you happen to be up, so hey, why not have a cigarette? I'm up. Really, if you were addicted to that substance, much like a heroin addict or a meth meth addict is addicted, your body would go into like about a three-hour cycle. You'd have to have that fix every three hours or so. And you wouldn't be able to sleep an eight-hour night without having it. Interesting. So have you, do you have any, do you keep records of your clients and how many of them have success? Or do you, is there any way you can tell if it's worked? Because once they leave your office, you know, maybe you wouldn't be seeing them again. Sure. Um, I, I do keep track of my clients. I do, I do have a database of my clients as well as I do keep files on my clients. Um, clients for me, like for my smoking program, it comes with a lifetime. I don't want to say a guarantee because I can't follow them home. Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to keep smoking, they will keep smoking. But it's a lifetime sort of, uh, we can call it lifetime reinforcement with me. So if they start smoking again, they simply have to come and see me again and I'll help get them back on track. Um, people make poor decisions all the time. And if they decide to be smoke-free, and then all of a sudden, two years down the road, they have a crisis in their life, and they return back to that old habit of smoking because they think it's going to help them with their problem, 
I want to make sure I can get them back on track. So I usually do know if a client uh, is not successful because they will come back and see me. Fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. That's good. Right. Well, one of the things you told me over the phone last week that interested me was hypnosis, you said, can help people focus. And you gave the example of students and their work, but you also gave me the example of... um, a young baseball player. Sure. And how, how does that work? What I mean, I, I get the suggestion of, you know, clean living for a smoker, but what, mm-hmm. how do you, what do you, <laughs> when you have someone in a hypnotic state who wants to be a good baseball player, what, what could you possibly do? And you said this was a success story. Sure, sure. Well, if you think about it, it's all about those suggestions again. We can create whatever belief we want to in our, in our subconscious minds. And sometimes athletes, they will hit the proverbial wall. They will hit a slump. They will miss a shot from the free throw line. Or they won't be able to throw a straight fastball. And, or they might have thrown a pitch and hit a batter. What's the next thought they're going to think the next time they pick up the ball to pitch it? Gee, I hope I don't do that again. That creates a negative imprint on them. Then guess what? It becomes a belief. It becomes a fear. That fear becomes uh, debilitating, and it turns into an even stronger belief. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to hit the next person that comes up to the plate, or I'm going to miss the next free throw that I have to shoot. Oh, I hope it's not a game-winning free throw. Oh, my gosh. And so it becomes debilitating, and pretty soon they start believing that's what's going to happen. So you can create a positive belief. We can also create a negative belief. So we have to work together. Um... We have to get into their own head and make sure that that belief is reversed, changed, crushed, eliminated. So he would share with you these things, fears that he had, and then you would work through those and replace them subconsciously with a positive. And in this case, you said he ended up with the Blue Jays. Right, yeah. (laughs) He actually got signed with the Toronto Blue Jays. So, yeah. So I guess guess that slump was ended. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. And, And it's just, you know... Um, more specifically, again, it's creating different beliefs, eliminating maybe poor beliefs or bad beliefs, like you can't throw a straight fastball or you can throw faster in practice than you can in a real game. Um, you know, if you ever watch, uh, basketball players, I'll use them as an example, switch sports here for a minute. If you ever watch basketball players warming up before the game, they can nail every shot. They're out there just shooting for fun, well, warming up in this case, but they're just throwing the ball, and they, they nail every shot from the, in the basket. Yet when they're under the pressure of the game and they're at the free throw line, and you see the screaming fans behind the, behind the hoop yelling at them, the opposing screaming fans, you're going to miss, you're going to miss, you're horrible, you're a lousy player, shouting all those things, they get distracted, they lose focus. And a good basketball player will be able to tune all of that out. They won't even see the screaming opposing fans behind that hoop. They see the yellow metal, the circle that they got to throw the ball in. They're incredibly focused. Nothing distracts them from that goal. And so it's getting them to go into that, that, that state of mind. And most sports players, they call it the zone. Getting them to be able to go in the zone instantly on a moment's notice when they have to focus and make that shot. So do you prefer working with people in hypnotherapy or doing, you know, the the kind of show, I think you called it comedy hypnosis that you're going to be doing at the fair this week? Do you, does one have more, 
worth in your mind than the other or you know they're both of equal worth i mean certainly it's the shows are fun um i call that the fun side of the job because they are fun people laugh it's a great time the the merit to that is you know we get people to forget about reality for about 60 minutes that's really nice it's like going to a movie yeah (laughs) Um, you get to forget about the real world and all the stuff that's going on um the same thing there's merit for clinical work too um you're helping somebody to change their life in some cases, you might even be saving their life if you're eliminating a really, really dangerous habit like smoking. So honestly, they both have their merit. I enjoy working with people no matter what platform. So the hypnotherapy sessions are fun as well. Um, just a different kind of fun. And you mentioned that you'd use this on your now-grown children. You did pain management, did you say? Is that? Yep. Um, I was blessed to have two daughters that both needed braces. And so, um, as you know, um, braces are, uh, that was sarcastic, of course, for our listeners, and I'm rolling my eyes now. Um, so, but uh, as you know, braces can be sometimes painful when they go in for the adjustments, the tightening, and all that stuff. And, of course, both of my daughters, you know, they did it right. They not only needed braces, but they also needed orthodontic surgery as well. So that's always very painful, too. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and I help them, um, you know, to, to manage that as well uh, as they're going through it. And, and I believe I think one of the daughters even, of course, had a procedure right before we went on a family fun vacation. So that's always fun, too. Great planning on our part as parents. Um, again, <laughs> Your more wife sar- is nodding <laughs> along with a smile. Again, more sarcasm there. But with the pain but, management, uh, it was still the vacation was a go? The vacation was a go, and it became more manageable. Yeah. It's one of those things. Hypnosis is not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It's not a magic wand. But it makes life more manageable. We don't want to eliminate pain entirely, because then what if something actually was wrong? What if, what if they had an infection in their mouth? And they were feeling no pain, and we wouldn't know that until it caused some other problems in the body. So you don't want to ever want to eliminate pain. You want to make it more manageable without, of course, drugs and all that stuff. Well, this has been a really enlightening session. And what's going to happen now is Marcello will be at one of your shows in order to put part of that into this broadcast. But is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is important for people to know? Well, you know, I always say that um, hypnosis is one of those things. It's very, very safe. There's, there can be nothing bad that would happen to somebody by trying hypnosis, whether it be on stage in a stage show. And when you come to see one of my stage shows, you'll hear me do a, what I call a pre-talk. I'll explain what hypnosis is, what it's not. I'll dispel some myths about it so that people feel comfortable at volunteering. They, they will know that I won't make them do anything they don't want to do. I won't make them say anything they don't want to say. And certainly I won't control their minds. Most importantly, nobody ever gets stuck in hypnosis. That's only the stuff you read on the Internet and in Hollywood. So that's all just a bunch of uh, stuff. Yeah, a bunch of not real stuff. And so um, nobody ever gets stuck in hypnosis. Um, And and I would say, too, try hypnosis. You can use some self-hypnosis, or you can go to a clinical hypnotherapist or a stage hypnotist. Try it. It's very, very relaxing. And it's something that everybody should really do. We all do it anyways, informally, when we daydream, when we zone out, when we go to the movies, laugh, cry, or get scared. Um, We all do hypnosis anyways. This is just more intentfully and more purposefully. And so I would suggest everybody to try hypnosis. It's just really, really relaxing and really, really good for you. Well, thank you. 